in between different things, I keep coming back to the book I started. We're in Hebrews 8. Uh, if you could turn there, Hebrews 8. And uh, next week we'll begin a uh, four-week series on stewardship and the challenges before us. And uh, just be praying that uh, we'll be having Robert Richardson. We'll be having different ones that will speak to us. Uh, the great challenge, can God's people keep his church going financially? And I'm talking about church-wide, where, oh, wherever. They say people, the givers of most churches are those 50 and older. And so that the younger generation, one of the great challenges today uh, is for the young people to be captured and to see that God wants them to be a part in every way, not only service, giving, whatever. Uh, lest those of you who are the givers age, pass away, and the church has these incredible deficits that they are announcing and prophesying in much literature that the church is in a crisis in that era. So I just pray God will keep raising up in this local church and his church throughout the world those who love the name enough to put him first in every area of their life. And they'll never be disappointed. Look at Hebrews 8, and I'm going to look at the blessings of the new covenant. And uh, uh, here the writer of Hebrews is dealing with people that are vacillating. Some have not, have not made a break from the temple, uh, from the Aaronic priesthood. They've not broken from Judaism as they understood it then. And some are attending th these congregational meetings where they're saved Jews, and they're vacillating. They're, uh, what's the difference? Uh, I, I, I'm married to the old. I like the way I grew up this way. I grew up being Jewish. I grew up going to synagogue, temple, priest, sacrifices. It's my way of life. And here, with the introduction of Christianity, is a break. Something new has come. Something new has come, and we're laying aside the old. We're laying aside the temple. We're laying aside the Aaronic priesthood. We're laying aside animal sacrifices. And this is a, a revolutionary concept. And then the question, are you asking me to give up my Jewishness? No, not at all. We're asking you to embrace your Jewish Messiah and enter into this new arrangement based upon him. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying, chapter 7, that Christ is our new high priest, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 
For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, notice not with the law, but with the people to whom it was given. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He's announcing the end of the old dispensation under the law, the Aaronic priesthood, uh, Levitical sacrifices. All that has served its course. It's fading away, and God's going to do something new in the new covenant. Uh, please read with me. Turn to Ezekiel. You need two other pieces that I think will help us understand the Jeremiah passage that he quotes. If you look at Ezekiel uh, chapter 11 to see another piece of this new covenant that uh, is vital, in 11, 14, through the remainder of the chapter, he's saying that there's coming a time when God is going to take scattered Israel among all the nations who's been judged for the idolatry. God's going to bring them back to the land bring them back from the nations, and he's going to do something for them. And he says in verse 17, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And by the way, they say Jews are leaving Europe in record numbers because of the anti-Semitism that's going on more and more are moving to Israel, a tough place to live, an expensive place, but trying to get over the persecution against the Jewish people. And so they're being, even going there now, and I will give them one heart 
and a new spirit, and I will put within them, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. He adds here, he's going to take away the stony heart, put a heart of flesh, going to put a new spirit in them. Look at chapter 36, just to get various pieces of this new work God's going to do. We pick up verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. They will get to dwell on the land. So, it's great promises. I'm going to regather you, and I'm going to do a work in your heart so that you never go back to idolatry, that you will finally be a people that obey me. I'm going to take away the hard, insensitive spirit. I'm going to do a divine work in you. So, he is now saying in this uh, new covenant ministry, uh, let me give you at least six things that he says he's going to do. And if we have time, uh, we'll pick up some other things. Number one, you've got a new high priest. He's not of Aaron's tribe. He is after the order of Melchizedek. He said that in chapter 7. So we have a new representative in this covenant. Not Aaron, but Christ. Christ alone. He is the priest of the church. He is that middleman that represents us to God. So, it's based upon a better priest than Aaron. Because if you recall, Hebrews 5 said the Aaronic priesthood was full of weakness. They had to bring sacrifice for their own sins. They were beset with their own weakness. We now have a glorified high priest, no sin, makes no sacrifice for himself. He simply represents his people. What a marvelous, marvelous thing. And chapters 8 through 10, he's going to tell you, this high priest ministers from a new sanctuary, not one in a tent down here, not the tabernacle tent, not the temple of Solomon. He operates out of headquarters up there, out of the third heaven. And then chapter 9 and 10 will say, and he operates not on the basis of many sacrifices, he operates on the basis of one sacrifice for all time. So, just those three things. I got a new high priest, new headquarters, and a permanent sacrifice. All of that is a part of the new covenant, not the old covenant. What a marvelous thing. I just think of, where is the headquarters for the church? I remember a man, a pastor in the area, didn't like me and called me a cultist. He said, he's leading a cult over there. And the reason was I wasn't in the denomination. He was wondering what denomination I belonged to. I said, I belong to the one located in heaven. 
And he, he didn't like that. He didn't like that. Well, you're a cultist. And uh, uh, I said, no, no, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm paid up in full. I'm in good standing with the head of the church. <laughs> and he's up there. I've been in denominations. I, I've been ordained with them. I'm all that. I know all about that. I know all about conventions and preachers and all of that. I gave that up when I started this church because I didn't want to be about it. I just wanted to focus on pastoring. And, but anyway, when you come to see, well, who's the head of your outfit? Christ. Now, now what's a little tricky about that, all groups make that claim. Uh, Joseph Smith makes that claim. Uh, Rome makes that claim. We all say Jesus is the head. How does Jesus make his will known is the second issue. Is it through a denomination's bylaws or through this? See? The issue is how does headquarters make its will known on the earth? We're people that say scriptures. And we're like Luther. I'm not bound by dogmas, popes, decrees, or traditions. My heart is bound by the word of God. And here I stand, I could do no other. Right? I could do no other. We just had some folks come back from Germany. That's got to be fresh in your heart. Fresh in your heart. Here I stand by the word of God. So, he says, we got a new priest, a new headquarters, a new once-for-all sacrifice. And then, what are you going to do? What else is going to happen in this new covenant? Well, Let's begin to look at it. Uh, verse 10, quoting Jeremiah, but I must deal with the theology here. You, you don't care for theology, but I have to. I have to deal with the text. In verse uh, 8, he says, I will establish a new covenant with the church. Is that what your says? Yeah, I got an ESV, so you can blame it. With a house of who? And with the house of, well, uh, what are we talking about? We're in a new covenant. I thought we were the church. We are not Israel. We are not Judah. Let me tell you what a lot of interpreters do. They steal all the blessings that God promises to Israel, but they leave all the curses on Israel. We don't want Israel's curses, but we steal their blessings. We just massacre Scripture. you got a problem. Uh, hey, I've got him saying here, he's making this covenant with the house of Israel. And, of course, he's just going to mention some things because the new covenant really is going to regather them to the land. It's going to restore that. He's going to do those things. It's going to be a geopolitical restoration as well as regeneration of the heart. Why are we getting in on this? Because he added the church to its spiritual blessings when he said in the upper room, this cup I'm taking is the blood of a new covenant I'm about to initiate. Ah, new covenant starts there. First uh, Corinthians, he repeats that. We're drinking the cup, celebrating a new covenant. 
2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I am a minister of a new covenant, not the letter, but the Spirit, not of that which is fading, but that which is permanent. Let me give you an illustration. If you were to study the Abrahamic covenant, it goes this way. It starts out in Genesis 12, leave Ur, I make you a promise to bless you. Okay, good enough. God made a promise. Chapter 15, God adds further things to that promise, and he confirms the covenant by putting Abram to sleep and walking down between the meat and confirming unconditionally he's going to bless Abraham, part of the Abrahamic covenant. But we get to chapter 17. Guess what? I want you to circumcise your male children as a part and sign of this covenant. Well, why didn't you say that back in 12? I didn't. I can give the parts of it as I want. I'm going to give another part. Circumcise your children. Chapter 22, he takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah. He puts an oath on top of his promise. I'm going to truly bless you. I'm going to add kings, nations, property. So you see, from chapter 12 to 22, 10 chapters, he keeps adding different parts to the same covenant. What happens on the new covenant, he includes us and the church for its spiritual salvation aspect. He's not promised us land. He hasn't promised to take us back to Israel. That's Jewish part. He's promised to make us experience the spiritual regeneration, and we've already started cashing in on that. We are enjoying the spiritual salvation benefits of this new covenant. Okay, what are they? Let's pick up verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, and I'll include the church in the future because they don't even exist now when Jeremiah is writing. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. What is he saying? I'm going to do an internal work in my people because the law has not made them love me. All the ceremony has not made them be true to me. All the sacrifices. God said, I turned from them because of their rebellion. Was their legislation something wrong with it? Something wrong with the Torah? No, the law was good, perfect, wonderful. Nothing wrong with it. But its effect on the people was disastrous because law, there's something about it that reveals the terribleness in our nature, that a good legislation brings out rebellion in us. He says it. You read it. Romans 3.20 says, by the law, it shuts up our mouth, proves us guilty. Galatians 2.19, by the deeds of the law, no one that will ever be right with God. Best legislation in the world. Wonderful. Perfect. You not only break the Ten Commandments, there's a whole lot of other ones we break. And the nation that had the law given to them, how did they end up? Loving God, bowing before God, 
loyal to him? Not at all. You can't get any further than the book of Judges than they're selling out God every chance they can. They become idol worshipers. Yo, you can't. You cannot have the law given to you and wind up worshiping another God. You can't. Study the nation of Israel. They never kept the first commandment. Honor the Lord their God. What's the problem? Legislation alone does not make you love God. What we need has to happen in us. Legislate all you want. Legislate all you want. I'll just show you some more commandments I can break. Because he's saying, Israel, you went from me. I chose you. I led you out of Egypt as a father does a child. He said, I was a husband to you. And you became, in the language of the Old Testament, you became a prostitute. You divorced God. You went out. You slept with everything in the country. And in Ezekiel 16, he said, you're sleeping under every grove of trees with other gods. He uses horrific language, infidelity, immorality, idolatry. You've sold me out. You become a whorish wife. And I made an ideal covenant. And you said, we will do it. We will do it. We will do it. And you've not done it. You've broken it, broken it, broken it. You've abandoned me. So I've got to do something new in order to ever get a people to love me. Having commandments doesn't make you love God. Now, they have the commandment. They had Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body, and teach this to your children. Wonderful legislation. And some did it. But the nation as a whole did not do it. And they had the commandment. And so God said, even as far back as Jeremiah, way back there in the prophets and Ezekiel, there's coming a time I'm going to give a new covenant and I'm going to roll up the old one because you fail miserably under it. And I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do it with a new high priest at a new sanctuary based upon a new sacrifice. I'm going to do something internally in my people that the law cannot do. And the old covenant failed. And the failure, once again, was the people. We didn't keep it. Isn't it something, uh, sometimes you hear people say, well, I want to know the will of God. You know what? Hear me. The problem with most of us is not knowing it, it's doing it. We're knowledge saturated. You mean you don't know? You don't know what God expects? Or is it, I don't want to do what he expects. I can't explain it. I got something in there. That when he says, stand up, I want to sit down. When he says, don't, I want to. Why? What's wrong? you got to have something change in you that only God can do. It's really the promise of regeneration. Being born again inside where God gives you a new nature, a new heart, a new spirit. 
That's why Nicodemus was supposed to know when Jesus said, you need to be born of water and the Spirit, Nicodemus. And he's clearly, you mean you want me to be born from my mother again? No, no. Oh, teacher of Israel, don't you know this? Don't you know that Ezekiel said, God will cleanse you, sprinkle you with water, and do something in your spirit? He goes on and he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. A new internal work. Uh, nothing is as empty as heartless ritual ceremonialism. You know what? There will be millions of people today show up at places of worship, and they will go through the motions, and they'll drop in their little offering, and they'll do this and that. They'll genuflect. Maybe they may do the sign of the cross. They may do the Protestant uh, rituals, whatever, and God be a thousand miles from them because ritualism and externalism isn't what God wants. That's not what he wants. He's not impressed. He's not even impressed with your offering unless your heart was in the offering. Just mere externalism does not, that's not what he wants. He wants our heart captured. And then he says in verse 11, I will see to it that you know me. Everyone will not be teaching his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The new covenant says, I'm going to give you a true knowledge of God. Let me ask you a question and really sincerely think about it. Do you honestly, can you honestly say you know God? Do you know God? Is it possible? Do you know God? Not about him. Not, to, well, I hear there's one out there. Uh, not, not about him. Do you know him in the sense of being a family member? That I know him as my father. I know him as a child. I know God. Is that true? It's interesting when he wanted to express the intimacy of marriage in the Old Testament, he would say he knew his wife. That was the modest way of the Old Testament saying they consummated the marriage. They were physically one. But, but the, the modesty of the Old Testament said he knew her. It wasn't facts about her. He had an intimacy there that was reserved only for marriage. You get First John. These things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. He that has the Son, Jesus Christ, has eternal life. Now, let me ask yourself, how many people do you think will die and meet God that will be full of religious activity, full of re religious works, they did everything within their framework of understanding to uh, uh, please God, uh, to appease God, uh, 
sacrifices to gods, all of the religious. Man is a very, very religious being. He'll bust out some way. But can you say you know God? And here he says, no longer will they be saying, hey, let me teach you how to know God. Let me teach you how. No, he said, something internal will take place in them so that they will know God from the least to the greatest. It's going to go beyond Israel and Judah. It's going to become universal that you will know God. Now, a very scary verse in Matthew 7 says, people die with the assumption they know God only to find out they don't know him. They show up and they simply start saying, Lord, Lord, you know us. We're the folks that did all this religious activity in your name. We cast out demons. Try that. That's a little tough. You better be sure you can get beat up. It happened in Acts. I used to tell folks, as Pentecostals cast them out, you Baptists taught them. Not everybody wants to deal with demon-possessed people. It's a little scary. But they actually claimed that. And Jesus didn't say they didn't do it. He didn't call them a liar for that. Uh, we did this in your name. We did that. Well, as far as I'm concerned, when I first read the narrative, I say, well, man, they're in. They got it made. You do that kind of religious activity, you've got it made. And he simply says, I'm, I never knew you. I've never known you. You've never been mine. I didn't know you and lose you. I never did know you. How many preachers are going to show up in heaven that's going to say, I never knew you? How many deacons? How many of you are going to show up? And he say, I don't know you. You went through the motions. You showed up on Sunday. Matter of fact, you're a nice person. But you never knew me. He says, this new covenant is out not to make you religious externally and go through all this, but he wants to do a heart work in us so that inside of us there's a new heart and a new spirit and a new relationship with God so that we call God Abba, Father. You're my Father. I know you. I've been born in your family. I know you. And then he says something that's so beautiful. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Under the old covenant, covenant, every year God remembered all your sins. They came due at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. Every 360 days, God remembered, you've blown it, you're a sinner, and the debt is due and even when you killed a sacrifice, it wasn't paid. He just gave you time. Nothing in the Old Testament paid for the sins. Nothing. You just went through the motion, and God gave you time, and every sin that was covered had to be forwarded to the cross. That's the only place a sacrifice ever got rid of sin the cross work of Christ. Animal blood, Hebrews 10, never did atone completely. It was to buy you time 
and move the balloon payment up to the cross. If there was no cross, all that Old Testament sacrifice would have accomplished nothing. Do you mean we've killed thousands of animals only to be said, you still remember our sins? Yes. But in the new covenant, with a new high priest, with a new sacrifice, with a new sanctuary, I plan to do a work in you, and one of my works is, I will forever choose never to remember your sins again. Can it be true? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I thought God was mad at my iniquities. He should be, but he said, I've decided to show mercy. It will cost me my son, but I will show mercy. And I will remember their sins no more. When God chooses to forget something, it's self-chosen. He's all-knowing. It's ideal. I'll never bring it up again. I'll never deal with it again. I choose to put it in the sea of forgetfulness. I choose to put it behind me as far as the east is from the west. And one man used to say, he put it in the sea of forgetfulness, and he put a no fishing sign there. Don't go fishing. Look at all of you. Is there anything in your past you wish you couldn't remember? You'd say, oh, I wish I could do that over again. What was I thinking when that happened? Uh, oh, what you can do before you're 25. What you can do. And many limp through the rest of their life trying to recover from the foolish decisions they made by the time they were 25. Unwed children, children out of wedlock, habits, killing, horrendous things that happen in the human experience. And in your own heart, you're saying, oh, that I could forget it. And you can't. And what's hurtful is there's many people in your life that won't let you forget it, especially if it was against them. And they're going to remind you remind you, and now the holiest being in all the universe says, in the new covenant that I'm offering, I promise you this. I'm going to have mercy on you, and I've chosen that I will never bring your sins up against you. I'll let my son's sacrifice be enough. This is called the gospel. This is called you mean you get to walk? Yeah, you get to walk. But not because you've got a stupid judge. You've got a righteous judge that has righteously dealt with our sins in the death of his son. This is gospel. Uh, it's wonderful. You know, uh, I was just kind of thinking, if we had time, we would look at 2 Corinthians where he, uh, he gives four other things, but let me just rattle them so I can get off my mind. But you don't need to write it down. Uh, there he said the Judaizers were wanting a covenant written in ink because they were boxing with Paul in Second Corinthians. He said, ours has been done by the Spirit. Theirs is temporary. Ours is permanent. Theirs is done on stone talking about the law, what God's doing, he writes it on the heart, the fleshly tablets of the heart. 
he says that in that covenant, way back there, he uh, uh, reached in, and it's temporary. And Moses had to take, uh, keep the veil on because it was passing. The new covenant will never pass. And the one killed, the letter killed. It wasn't the letter of interpretation, the law killed. Something good wound up killing me because you've got to kill the offender. The law was good, but part of the law, see, when you say you're under law, you're under penalty too. You see, if you go out and say uh, uh, 55 mile an hour speed limit, and is that good advice or is that law? What well, makes the difference between good advice and law? Penalty. If you break it, we're going to arrest you, fine you, pull you over. When you say you're under law, it's not just under all these great statutes. You're under penalty for breaking any of them. And that's why the letter kills. We keep breaking. Over here in the new covenant, we're forgiven, and God gives us the Spirit that enables us to keep the law without even trying to. Because he who loves obeys everything the law says. You remember what Jesus said to a man that was bragged at being a righteous man? He said, uh, uh, I've kept all these commandments all my life. He said, let me test you in one area. I wonder, you racist, if you could love a crippled, beat-up Samaritan or a man by the road, because you just told me that the essence of the law is to love God and to love your neighbor. And the guy said, I agree. And then he says, by the way, who is my neighbor? I get to pick who I love, don't I? Don't I? And he better not be black and I'm white because I don't have to love black folks. Oh, oh is that right? You get to pick who you love. Well, is he a Jew or Gentile? Is he rich, poor? Uh, some, some little quotient you got to rationalize who you can love. Does he have to have your last name? And he said, no, 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 let me tell you a story. The two most religious people in your world had no time to help a broken man, a fallen man, and they knew the law backwards and forward but they had no love for God to help a neighbor. Why is it some Christians are so rigid and they know all the rules, but you can't get them to love? Because they may be going to hell with a bunch of rules. Well, the thing that happens when you meet this God is you don't get a rule book, you get a new heart. You get a new disposition. You know, I have to say something that uh, I think about when I got saved, uh, I was 14, and uh, these people that my folks went to church with, uh, they looked like people that got off the ark. These were old-timey Christians. You don't know anything I'm talking about. But I'm not kidding. These were old-timey Christians. These women didn't wear makeup. They had uh, long, I mean, they had dress code. They were strict about dress. No short sleeves. I mean, a different day, 50s. And you couldn't hardly do anything. Everything that you thought was fun 
they made a rule against. I mean, you didn't want them to ever catch you smiling. They might make a rule. It was strict. All kinds. Strict, strict. I didn't want it. I loved the music. Uh, much of my family was there. I loved even the spirit of the meetings. But, man, in my mind, I'm saying, I can never run with these people. I can never. I'm too young to die. There's too many dances to go to, too many girls that need a lip lock. I, I, I just, I got to share my life with many, and it ain't in this church. And if, if I'm going to die in this life, I guess I'm not going to be with old people, gray hair, buns. I mean, I really mean it. These women out there, like, this was like, you, you're looking, who would you be? The Puritans, or uh, you're going way back. And I'm already stealing records down at Arch Record Store because Elvis has just come out. And, and B.B., I'm stealing once a week at 6 in McDonald. Let me tell you, I am. Never got caught either. So I, I'm here, and I think, good night. I'd like to go to heaven, but I surely don't have to travel with this crowd. Guess what? That Tuesday night Bible study, God came down. And he put a new heart in me, a new spirit, a new set of desires, a new this, a new that. He changed me inside out, so I spent the rest of my youth running with a bunch of old gray-headed women and men who were going to heaven because they became kinfolks. You see, there's, a, there's an old song that says, the world looks bright when I get right. Quit trying to change everybody else. You change. He changes us in the heart. Oh, you're the critic. You're the critic. Who made you the critic? Judge yourself. Judge yourself. I don't need you judging me. I've already passed the judgment bar of God. And he said, you're justified by faith. Don't take on God. Who can condemn him whom God's justified? Not even Satan. Not even Satan. I have a defender up there. But you know what? I fell over, head over heels in love with Christians. I didn't care what color they were, what age they were. I didn't care about how they dressed, didn't dress. I didn't care about these rules, that rule. Carol and I said, we never knew what legalism was. We just fell in, kept every rule they had, and had a ball. You know why? The rules didn't make us. We got a new heart. We can live under all those rules. We did it. I didn't go to shows. My wife never wore makeup until I started this church because the people we ran with didn't believe in makeup. When I started this church, I said, you know what, sweetheart? There's no Bible against it. Why don't you, why don't you go ahead and wear it? <laughs> right? Like that. And I didn't tell her every barn needs paint. I didn't use that. <laughs> no, no. No, I just said, Go ahead. But we, were, we didn't want to offend any of those people. And, and it didn't bother us. Some people say, what was it hard for you being around all those legalists? What was it? We couldn't spell it. Why? All we wanted to do was pray, give, serve, and love. Man, I hugged every gray-headed woman in that church. They'd been my Sunday school teachers. And I'm in a leather jacket, got a fist load in one pocket, because I thought I might have to beat up somebody at church, you know. Weighed at least 90 pounds. I was a threat. Just a little punk. A little punk. And in a moment, in a moment, 
I fell in love with those people. They became my people forever. They still are. I don't care how small a group, how backward. That's where sometimes we're trying to make the church likable for young people. Let me tell you, young people, what you need, there's not hardly any young, anybody young around here, <laughs> is when you meet Jesus, you're not worried about what age the group you're running. Anybody that loves him and his name, I want to run with. That's who I want to run with. Well, we're under a new covenant whether you like it or not. Don't try to get me under law. Don't try to get me under rituals. Don't try to get me under ceremonialism. I'm under a new high priest. I'm under a new covenant. And the proof is he's changing me inside out. What about you? When he saves you, you won't be miserable. That's why I believe some of you aren't saved. You look too miserable to be saved. And he'll actually notify your face because a joyful heart makes a happy countenance.